I want to welcome you to, um, I guess you could say it's week two. We're, we're in a series called Knowing and Encountering God. It was a two-part series. Uh, we focused on knowing who God is leading up to Easter. Now we're, we're uh, kind of narrowly focusing on encountering God and specifically asking the question how, how an encounter with God can change your life. Uh, to do that, <clears throat> uh, so really starting this week, we kind of did an intro to this section last week, but starting this week for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at different case studies in Scripture of people who had encounters with God who changed their lives, and we're, we're going to look at how their encounter with God changed them um, and show us what it teaches about how God can change us in the same way. And so today, to kind of start off these case studies, we're going to be looking at the life of a man named Jacob. And um, the moment where everything begins to change for Jacob is found in Genesis chapter 32. We'll read verses 24 through 31. Very, very um, enigmatic kind of mysterious account. But I think in this passage, uh, what we see is basically a roadmap to deep, lasting transformation. Verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men, and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, he said, and I have been delivered. The sun shone on him as he passed by Peniel, limping because of his hip. This is God's word. So we're going to get into really all of Jacob's life today. I'm going to try to get you into the character of Jacob as presented in Scripture as as deeply as I can in the time that we have. But um, just as an introduction, when you survey uh, the life of Jacob as recorded in Scripture, I say this with the the utmost um, seriousness, Jacob is a walking daytime TV talk show waiting to happen in every sense of the word. Uh, he is, he's a train wreck uh, is what he is. He's raised in uh, what the Bible is very clear is uh, an incredibly dysfunctional childhood home where his father doesn't even try to hide the fact that he loves his older twin brother Esau instead of him. And Jacob carries his child around uh, carries his childhood around uh, like a disease for all of his life. And uh, it leads to a lot of poor decisions, a lot of burnt bridges, a lot of broken relationships. Um, and it's this passage that we're looking at today in, in Genesis 32 in which God uh, finally begins to heal the deep wounds in Jacob. <clears throat> and just like God, what we're reading in this strange account is that the way that God decides to heal the wounds in Jacob is by wounding Jacob. And so this passage, I think, is a, um, if you were here last week, this passage is a great 
sort of counterbalance to what we covered last week. Because last week, we looked at a prayer of Paul's at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, where he's praying that, you know, the Ephesians, but, but it's recorded in God's Word because God desires that we would all have encounters with God. And we talked about how great those encounters are and how it's, it's where the love of God becomes so real that it, 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 it lifts you and it frees you from being defined by all these other things and we should desire it and we should pray for it because it's the fuel that we live on. Today, we're looking at an account that reminds us that an, an encounter with God can often feel like a wrestling match and it can wound you to the point that you, you walk with a limp the rest of your life. The difference is that the wounds that your heavenly Father inflicts on you are wounds that actually heal you. And so today we're looking at a topic that I, I, don't, I don't know what gets any more relevant than this. In, in you know, about 10 years of, of meeting with people and listening to people and talking with people and, and, and crying with people on, on some occasions, I don't know that it gets any more relevant than, than the question we're looking at in Genesis 32 because what we're talking about today is how an encounter with God can heal you from the pain of a dysfunctional childhood. And what we see in Jacob's life is that in in order for you to be really healed and transformed from the pain of your past, there's two things this account shows us that we need. First off, we need to hear the blessing that really satisfies. And then secondly, we need to receive the wound that really heals. And so those two ideas are going to frame the content for today. So with that, I I just want to get to the first one. Uh, Number one, Jacob's life shows us that you you need to hear the blessing that really satisfies. So if if you are are, going to understand anything about Jacob, what you first need to understand, he's introduced to us in, in Genesis 25, so there's been a lot of real estate about him covered before this account today. But Jacob's life, start to finish, really revolves around the concept of blessing. And if you zoom out from his life, which is basically a smoking crater most of the time, you'll find that all of Jacob's problems stem from the fact that he, he is consistently going after the wrong blessing. And it's only when he recognizes the true blessing and begins to go after that blessing that everything that's wrong in him begins to get um, set right and begins to heal. And to explain what I mean, let's just kind of start at the beginning of his story, um, and I'll try to give you more or less a flyover. So when Jacob is is first introduced in Genesis 25, we read that he is the younger of of, uh, a pair of twins. So he has an older twin brother named Esau, and... um, one of the first things that, that we uh, learn about his, his uh, home dynamic is that their father, Isaac, uh, loves Esau not just more than Jacob, but actually instead of Jacob. Um, Esau is, uh, we're told he's this really rugged, um, actually the Bible explicitly said he's, he's an extremely hairy, uh, outdoorsman, kind of likes to work with his hands, be out in the field, you know, cook game kind of thing. Uh, and, and Jacob is exactly the opposite. Um, J- Jacob, I've often considered this to be one of the most hysterical verses in the Bible. When describing himself, I think this is Genesis 26, uh, Jacob refers to himself as a smooth man, which what he's saying is that he can't grow a beard, uh, which is going to become significant here in, in a moment. And, and, um, 
And so Jacob, is, he's kind of a domesticated guy. He likes to dwell in tents. He keeps to himself. He's, scripture says, a simple man, the polar opposite of Esau. But what matters for you and I is that Scripture could not be any more clear that Esau is the son that Isaac wanted. Jacob is simply the son that he got. He's, he's, he's the, the, the leftovers. That's all he is. And so obviously that wounded Jacob deeply the way that it would wound absolutely anybody in, in a, a childhood home like that. And you can see how, how it goes on to affect Jacob really early on, because not long after he's introduced, we're told that Isaac was approaching the end of his life. Uh, he knew however much time he had left that there wasn't a, a whole lot. And so he, uh, he knew that it, it, it came time to do something that was incredibly significant in the ancient world, which is to uh, basically give the birthright blessing. So if you know anything about ancient societies, in, in pretty much all ancient societies, the way that it worked is that the, the, uh, the firstborn, the oldest, always got the lion's share of the inheritance. And so the, the, the patriarchal figure, which is Isaac in this case, before he died, he would call in the firstborn. Uh, he would um, give his firstborn his share of the inheritance. He would then pronounce a blessing over his life. And so when Isaac knew that it was you know, basically, he didn't have a lot of time left to do this. He called in Esau, uh, but before pronouncing this blessing on him, he sent him out into the fields to hunt and to kill some game, some venison, to prepare him a meal so that he and his beloved son Esau could celebrate the giving of this blessing with a feast. And so Esau went out, and when Esau did, Jacob saw his chance. Uh, and, and Scripture says, because Isaac, I think he was about 130 years old at this point, uh, he was blind. Um, Jacob, while Esau was out in the field, he went into his father and posing as Esau, he convinced Isaac to pronounce the blessing on him rather than his brother. And, and literally, I mean, he went to seemingly ridiculous lengths to get his father to believe that he was Isaac. Scripture says he, uh, he, he had goat hair applied to the areas of his body that he knew his dad would be touching in this ceremony. So he had goat hair on his neck goat hair on his hands to try to convince his dad, Isaac, that he really was Esau. Isaac was, was kind of skeptical, but he basically took Jacob's word for it. Anyway, he pronounced the blessing over Jacob. Uh, as you can probably guess, about five minutes later, the real Esau came into the tent, presented himself to Isaac, and it immediately became apparent what Jacob had done. And so uh, Esau was so livid that he was, from that moment on, um, he was determined to actually murder his brother Jacob. I just want to pause here uh, because this is really significant. If you look at that exchange, which to me that kind of summarizes basically how Jacob lived his life. He's, he's manipulative, he's scheming, he's conniving, he's always got a plan, he's always you know, two steps ahead. You, you look at that plan and you think that, that it just doesn't seem like there's a great deal of foresight there. Because unless, I mean, if you're Jacob and, and you wanted to successfully swindle Esau of his birthright, unless you're lucky enough for Esau to die out in the field, Jacob would have known that this stunt that he pulled was going to be over in about five minutes as soon as the real Esau showed up. And so it kind of begs the question, why would Jacob go to these theatric, ridiculous lengths just to get this blessing? And the answer to me is very clear. Scripture doesn't explicitly say this. This is my opinion, but I think it's very clear given what we know about Jacob. The reason Jacob was willing to go to such lengths as he was to pose as Esau here is because Jacob wanted to know, even if it was, if it was under false pretenses, 
Even if the words didn't really mean anything, and even if it was short-lived, Jacob just wanted to know once in his life what it would be like to know that his dad really loved him. That's all it was. Who cares if it's five minutes? Who cares if he's got to make a fool of himself and glue goat hair to or however he got it to stuck? Whatever it was, he just wanted to know just once. What would it be like to know that I was the son my dad wanted? That, that I'm good enough for him? That he approved of me? Now, you, you can look at Jacob and you can say, well, that's pathetic or that's ridiculous or that's whatever. But the truth is, if you know anything about yourself, you know that you and I are not a whole lot different than Jacob. Because we all go to great ridiculous lengths to try to get people to, to bless us, to affirm us. I mean, as, as relational people made in the image of a relational God, what that basically means is that the human heart needs, it, it, one of the deepest needs of the human heart is for somebody outside of us whose opinion matters to us to tell us that we matter to them, to affirm our value and our dignity and our sense of self-worth. As much as we try to, to tell ourselves or put up a front or whatever it is, the human heart cannot give that to itself that needs to be pronounced from the outside in. And so like Jacob, we are all you know, starving for, for this blessing. And like Jacob, we all look for this blessing in the wrong places, in the wrong ways, and, it, and like Jacob, it often leads to nothing but disaster. <clears throat> and that's basically the story of Jacob's life until God begins to, to heal him. <clears throat> because what you see if you read through his story uh, is that after this stunt where he pretends to be Esau, blows up in his face, um, Jacob has to literally flee for his life from his childhood home where he would never see his mother or father living again. So that clearly, that didn't work out for him. So scripture says he, he goes to a, a, uh, a distant country, and when he's there, he meets a woman named Rachel that the Bible even says is basically drop-dead gorgeous. And so Jacob, in his mind, is thinking, okay, you know, going after my father's approval clearly backfired on me, but maybe if I could get this beautiful woman to be my wife... Maybe if I could get that kind of relationship, maybe if I could get a person like that to love me, maybe then I'd be okay. And so <clears throat> Jacob struck a deal with his uh, soon-to-be father-in-law, Rachel's dad, uh, Laban, <clears throat> and the deal was you work for seven years and you can have my daughter's hand in marriage. And so Jacob does, uh, only at the end of the seven years, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with this if you know the story of Jacob, he, he discovers that he has accidentally married not Rachel, but Rachel's older sister, Leah. So, um, you know, you may have had a couple of bad days in your life. I don't think anybody's accidentally married the wrong person yet, all right? So hang in there, team. Um, but there's a great deal of irony there because, you know, you, Jacob is the deceiver, and here he is. Now Jacob is the deceived. <clears throat> and so he goes to his father-in-law, and <laughs> whatever that conversation was actually like, it's lost to history. But anyway, he has to work another seven years to get Rachel's hand in marriage, the woman that he really loved. And Scripture even tells us that seven-year period of time was like a moment for him because he was that set on Rachel. You know, he, he was driven by this idea, like we're so often driven in life, that if I, if I can just get her, if I, if once I get her, I'm going to be whole. And then you keep reading his story, seven years later, he does get Rachel, but as soon as he gets Rachel, his life actually gets measurably worse. And the reason for that is because uh, he put Rachel up on this pedestal uh, and, and because of that, and because of the favoritism that he showed her, and because of the favoritism that he showed the children that he had with her, he winds up basically dumping poison into his own family that causes decades of misery and generational pain and dysfunction that takes the rest of the book of Genesis for God to sort out. And, and so again, see the irony here that you have Jacob, whose childhood home was destroyed by the favoritism of the patriarchal figure, is now doing the same thing to his own family. I'm telling you, this is an episode of Dr. Phil waiting to happen. 
So Rachel doesn't work out for him. You know, he, he goes parental approval, swing and a miss. He goes romantic love, nope. And so he does the next best thing. He goes after possessions. And so he strikes a deal with his father-in-law, Laban. Uh, and he basically swindles him. Uh, and he amasses hordes and hordes and hordes of cattle. <clears throat> but all that does is drive a wedge between him and Laban and Laban's sons. And so for the second time in his life, Jacob breaks bad with the home that he's living. And he's got to flee in the middle of the night. Laban chases his, him down for 10 days, I mean, hunting him like an animal. Uh, and he probably would have killed Jacob if not for the fact that God intervened on Jacob's behalf, spoke to Laban and said, hey, that's my guy. I have an anointing on his life. You're not to lay a hand on him. And, and all of that is what leads us to this moment that we're looking at um, in, in Genesis 32. So zoom out from his life, and, and, and the, you know, the, the first thing that's abundantly clear about Jacob is, uh, you know, it might sound funny, but Jacob is the world's first professional wrestler. It's all he's been doing his entire life. <clears throat> and he's, he's good at it. I mean, he wrestled his brother for the birthright. He wrestled his father for the blessing. He wrestled Laban for, for Rachel and, and then also to get rich. And, the, you know, the, the funny thing about Jacob's life is he always got what he fought for. He always got what he wrestled for. You can't look at Jacob's. It's not like Jacob is the story of, of a guy who never quite got his hands on what he wanted. And if he would have just got what he wanted, maybe then he'd be happy. It's not the case. Because you go all through his life, Jacob always got what he wanted. I mean, he, he, Jacob was not a screw-up. Jacob was not a failure. Jacob's making, you know, Jacob's an entrepreneur making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in the United States. This guy is not, his life's not falling apart at the seams. Outside looking in, this guy hits every target he aims at. Because he really did get the birthright from Esau. He really did get the blessing from Isaac. He really did get the girl, Rachel. He really did get rich. But the tragic irony of his life is that even though Jacob always got what he wanted, he never got what he needed. <clears throat> and so all of that leads him to this place where he's, he's, he's I mean, he's in, a, he's in a really bad way. He's caught between an uncle that he can't go back to and a brother that he's terrified to face. And here he is in Genesis chapter 32. We're told that he's standing on the shore of the Jabbok River. And I love little details like this. This just proves that there's no wasted words in the Bible. You ask yourself, why do we need to know it's the Jabbok River? Here's why. The Jabbok River, it's a tributary of the Jordan River. It was this winding, twisting, uh, careening river. And, and the word Jabbok literally meant emptying. And so this river that Jacob stood on the shore of the night that he met God, it was a perfect metaphor for the man that he had been all his life prior to that moment. All Jacob's life, he'd been this winding, twisting, careening, manipulative, conniving, scheming man who'd always gotten what he wanted, only to be left empty. <clears throat> and it's then and only then that he was ready to meet God. And it, I mean, that, there's a sermon right there. You know, you can't get to the beginning of God until you get to the end of yourself. And the most gracious thing that God could do for us is give us everything that we set our hearts for and let us realize this isn't cutting it. That's where Jacob is. Maybe that's where somebody else is today. So anyway, in that moment, this mysterious figure jumps Jacob in the middle of the night. He is, um, his, his, his identity is, is, is uh, yeah, I would say mysterious on the one hand, but he's also incredibly powerful on the other. He's mysterious because he won't give Jacob his name. <clears throat> and the way that he talks to Jacob seems to indicate that it, it would be a bad idea for Jacob to see his face in the full light of day which, you know, if you read through the rest of the Old Testament, that clearly has the connotation of a divine figure to it. Um, but he's also incredibly powerful. 
Because scripture says, my, my version in, actually incorrectly translates the word. My version says that this figure struck Jacob on the hip. That's not the Hebrew word that's used there. It's no, it, it, the, the word for, for what this figure did to Jacob's hip is, is lightly touched it. So what we're told in this wrestling match is this man lightly touched Jacob's hip and simply by lightly touching it, blew it out of socket to the point that Jacob would never w- walk right again. <clears throat> of course, we go on to learn and Jacob himself goes on to learn that this figure is, in fact, God. Now, given everything that we've just learned about Jacob, you know, I think you know what Jacob should do here. I, I, I'll put it this way. I know what you should expect Jacob to do here. I mean, Jacob, like I said earlier, he's not a, he's not a in the eyes of the world at least, he's not a screw-up, and he's certainly not unintelligent. I mean, Jacob, if nothing else, he's a survivor. He finds out how to get what he wants, and to get out without getting hurt. He is a survival expert. So you would think, okay, he's just wrestled somebody so powerful that, that touching his hip has blown it out of socket. What Jacob should do here is what he's done his whole life, which is run. Come up with a plan, get out, you know, start over somewhere else, and then go ruin that life for yourself and you know, just kind of keep bouncing around. That's what you would think. But Jacob doesn't do that. Actually, for the first time in his life, he doesn't do that. And what Jacob does instead is something that causes his entire life to change. Now, but <clears throat> before I get to what that is and, 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 uh, and, and what it means for us and why it's so significant, I, I really want you to consider this is the moment in Jacob's life that his life begins to change. We know that for two reasons, because it's something God says here and something he says here. First off, it's in this encounter that God changes Jacob's name. Whenever God changes a person's name in Scripture, that always has the connotation of changing the entire trajectory of a person's life. You are not the same anymore. When God comes to, to Abram and makes him Abraham, Sarai becomes Sarah. When Jesus comes to Peter and it's you know, Cephas and all this kind of stuff, uh, he's changing the entire trajectory of somebody's life. That's what he does when Jacob becomes Israel. But not only that, if you paid careful attention to what Jacob said here, Jacob even realized something happened. Because when he rises up off the ground after this wrestling match, he says the words, I have been delivered. That's Jacob's way of saying, whoever I was when you dragged me to the ground, I'm a different man standing back up. He knew that he'd never be the same again. And scripture says, very clear, he wasn't. So the question is, what makes this such a a life-changing encounter with God? I mean, that's what this whole series is about. And and again, sorry if I'm kind of taking my time getting to it. But it's, it's, it's significant. Read Jacob's story. This isn't even his first encounter with God. It's just the first one that actually changed his life. So what did he do here and what can we learn here? And here's, the, here's kind of like the, the, the one-word summary statement. What happened here that caused Jacob's life to begin to change in a deep and lasting way is for the first time in his life he recognized the true blessing. Here's what I mean. I know that's super opaque, so let me, let me explain what I mean there. When Jacob says this kind of famous phrase, he says, I won't let you go until you bless me, you can read that in different ways. You might say, well, this is just Jacob doing what Jacob does. He's trying to get something for himself. I don't think that's the correct way to to see it. In fact, I know it's not because Jacob wouldn't have changed if that was his his posture toward God. There's actually a a, a profound amount of humility and, and sort of a contrite spirit when Jacob is holding on to God and says, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. Because in saying that, what Jacob is, is saying, he's saying, I finally realized that the blessing that I've been looking for my whole life in people and things, that blessing that I've been looking at in, in all the wrong places that's led to all the trouble in my life, I can finally see that the blessing I've always been after can only be found in you. 
And now that I have my hands on you, Jacob says, I don't care what this wrestling match costs me. I don't care how painful my leg is. I don't care how badly this wounds me. I don't care if this kills me. I'm not letting you go just to go back out there and find more of what's only ever always left me empty. I'm not letting go of you until you bless me. The point is this. It's one thing to approach God the way that I think the human heart naturally approaches God, which is as a means to an end. You know, God is the ticket to the good life. God is the ticket to the things that are really going to make you happy. It's a different thing to approach uh, God the way Jacob does here. It's fine to believe in God in a general sense, to practice religious activities, to throw up foxhole prayers and ask God to give you the things you really want, like you're Aladdin and he's the genie or something like that. Jacob did that his entire life. It never did anything for him. It never does anything for any of us. And what he's showing here, the, the, the secret to the beginning of lasting change in his life came when he realized that his biggest problem and his biggest issue had nothing to do with anything that happened to him and everything to do with how he responded to it. And it's no different for our lives. We might have a number of terrible things that God's led us through, terrible things that have happened to us, terrible things that we've experienced, but the problem underneath every other problem we have isn't about what happened to us. It's about how we responded to it because every human being alive since Genesis chapter 3 has responded exactly the way that Jacob has, where we go through this life looking for the true blessing that's going to heal us that's going to make us whole, that's going to make our life worth living, that's going to fill us with a sense of purpose, all of that kind of stuff. We look for that outside of God when it can only be found inside of him. And it's only when God brings us to this desperate place that he allowed Jacob to get to where we can finally see that there's really nothing to find out there and that our hearts are only going to be satisfied in and through the presence of God in our lives that real change can begin to take place. So first off, Jacob's life shows us that you have to hear the blessing that really satisfies. But what his story is showing us, is even, that, even that by itself isn't enough. There's something else that God had to do for Jacob that we need him to do for, for really all of us in order for deep, lasting, transformational change to take place. This is going to be our second and our final idea. <clears throat> Number two, this story shows us that you need to receive the wound that really heals. It's, sorry, it's, it's obviously not insignificant that this encounter that God had with Jacob, you know, it's not just an encounter with God. It's a wrestling match. Like every other detail that we find in the Bible, uh, that's there to teach us something very important. And I, I, before we get to that, just think about what a wrestling match actually is. I mean, even if you're, you know, I'm, I'm sure most people listening to this have not wrestled competitively but even if you just, you know, fought with your siblings or somebody else, pretty much everybody knows there really is no more exhausting and agonizing physical activity than wrestling. You know, you watch a UFC match and, and, and guys get tired, you know, when they, when they kick and punch each other. They get tired. But when they take the, 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 the fight to the mat and they start wrestling and rolling around on the ground, you can see it in somebody's face. They're just literally straddling the cusp of death no matter how good a shape you're in, because when you wrestle, it's every single muscle in your body all at once, and you're being suffocated, and you're rolling around, and it's just, and that's why wrestling matches never go more than a couple minutes. With that in mind, just consider Jacob wrestled with omnipotence, and he did so all night. So I don't know how many times you've done P90X, but you have not burned calories. I wish he had an Apple Watch on. See how many calories 
Jacob burned that evening. You think about the exhaustion that he must have felt. You think about the agony that he must have been in. And it, and it leads me, like it often does, it leads me to ask the question, why? <clears throat> why did it take a wrestling match for Jacob? Why didn't God show up and have a tea party with Jacob? You know, lay out a blanket and sit down and say, Jacob, I've seen, your, I've seen your whole life start to finish. I saw the childhood that you had. I've seen the way that you responded to it. And I have news for you. I have, I have plans for your life, Jacob. You're going to be used in a way you probably wouldn't even believe, you if, if, believe me if I told you. I mean, I'm going to bring salvation into this world in a way that's going to blow your mind through you. But here's what I need you to know, Jacob. You're looking for things outside of me that you can only find in me. Stop doing that. The sooner you stop doing that, the better your life's going to be, the more change you're going to experience, and the more powerfully I'll be able to use you. So I, it was just, it was time for you to hear it. I think you're ready to hear it, you know, toodles. And, and that's, the, why, why didn't God do it that way? Why not just, why not just tell Jacob what he needs to hear? And, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what the answer is. This is, an, this is an answer you see repeated over and over through Scripture, and you know it in your own life, because the human heart doesn't learn anything by being told, which I'm not unaware of how strange that sounds coming from a guy who professionally tells you things for a living. <laughs> but but I, I was telling the 9 a.m., you know, every, every pastor that preaches for any length of time eventually hears somebody come up and say, man, that sermon changed my life. And of course, that means a lot to me. But I know that that's not true because a sermon doesn't have the power to change anybody's life. When somebody says that, what they're really saying is, God has been operating behind the scenes in my life for weeks and months and years, and that sermon finally explained what God's been up to, and maybe it put a period at the end of the sentence. But the sermon in and of itself doesn't change anybody because the human heart doesn't learn that way. And it, I mean, I can, I can prove this because Scripture says in other places to you and I exactly what God was teaching Jacob here. I mean, there are dozens of places uh, where Scripture says in dozens of creative ways uh, that, that the things that our hearts truly need and, and, and will truly be satisfied by can only be found inside of God, and we should stop looking for them outside of God. The Bible says that to you. It says that to me. Can I ask you, does reading that verse change your life on a dime? Does that en enable you to flip a switch where you stop looking for satisfaction and approval and significance and security and you know, ultimate meaning outside of God? It doesn't work like that for me. You know, if I can just let you personally behind the scenes in my life, I can, I, can, I can say very clearly when I survey my 35 years of life that my heart has never learned what Jacob needed to learn here. My heart has never learned that my loves were disordered and that I've looked for other things or people to be and do for me when only God can be and do for me. It's never learned that lesson apart from a whole lot of pain and loss and suffering, and disappointment, and frustration, and depression, and anxiety, and sleepless nights, and breakdowns, and dark nights of the soul. I've listened to a lot of inspiring sermons. I've read a lot of really insightful literature, but the only thing that's ever allowed my heart to change, it's, it only has ever changed in incremental ways on the other side of kicking against the goads and all the pain that comes with it. And I'm convinced if the, if the human heart changed in a different way, then God would operate with us differently. But it doesn't, so he doesn't. So what you see in this story is that, yes, this is the amazing part. Jacob finally does 
hear the blessing that he's been looking for his entire life. He finally finds in God what he's unsuccessfully been hunting for in all of these other places that we're also prone to looking for it. However, it's only, he only hears that blessing in the midst of a wrestling match that wounds him so badly that he would never walk correctly again. So I, I zoom out from this story, and it almost begs the, the question for me, so what exactly did God do here? I mean, did God heal Jacob or did God wound Jacob? And the answer, like it so often is with God, is simply yes. Yeah, he healed Jacob and he also wounded him deeply. It's actually more than that. It's not just that he did both things. It's that he healed Jacob by wounding him. I remember, I think it was... Five or six years ago, I was doing a series through First Peter. We called it Intact. And First Peter is a book that's written to people going through a great deal of, of suffering, persecution, hardship, and, and all of that was about to get dialed up. And First Peter is basically a guide to getting through your trials better than you were, you know, on the front side of them. <clears throat> and so Peter talks about not being surprised by the fire ordeal when it comes upon you as though something strange is happening to you. And when I was putting together that teaching, I came across this verse from the book of Job. Uh, he had a huge impact on me back then, and, and God brought it to mind when I was putting this teaching together. Job chapter 5, verse 18, let me read this to you. This is, this is a man who, who experienced about as much loss as the human heart can experience without just completely becoming undone. Speaking of God, Job said, for he wounds, but he also binds up. Listen to this. He injures, but his hands also heal. What dawned on me the first time I came across that verse is I think, at least intellectually, I understand that God does both of those things. I think we, we all at least intellectually understand that, sure, God does both of those things. He leads you through painful times. He leads you through good times. But what I think we so often miss about God or misunderstand about God and certainly can't recognize about God in the midst of what he's doing in our lives is that so often God likes to do both of those things at the same time through the same experience in our lives. <clears throat> That's exactly what's happening with Jacob here, that at the same time, he's healing and he's wounding. He's healing by wounding. And this picture of Jacob, this man who is healed by his own wounds, it's just the perfect paradoxical Christian of what Scripture is telling us a Christian fundamentally is. Because when you come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, when you come to the gospel and you understand what it's saying about you and your need and you internalize the gospel, you build your life on the gospel and you allow it to permeate more deeply into the cracks and crevices of your heart, I would say first and foremost, even before the gospel heals you, it wounds you. Because the, 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 you know, the two-sided coin of the gospel on the one hand is that you, your sin is so serious that Jesus had to die for you, so serious that it required net, nothing less than the death of the Son of God to redeem you. But the other side of that coin is that you are so loved that the Son of God was glad to die for you, so sinful he had to, but so loved and valued and treasured that he was glad to. And so what the gospel does fundamentally, it's, of course it does, it wounds you deeply. The gospel deals a fatal wound to your and my pride, to, to your and my self-salvation schemes, 
to the arrogance that, that, that drives us so naturally through life, causing us to believe that we can save ourselves by our good works or that we can find uh, what it takes to satisfy our souls outside of God. Nobody, nobody swaggers away from the cross when they meet Jesus. You limp away from the cross for the rest of your life. The difference is you limp away from the cross with joy because you know from that moment until God brings you home in glory, you are sustained and carried by the love and the grace and the mercy of your heavenly Father. So there's a wounding, but there's also a healing. That's exactly, it, 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 it's, it's appropriate to say nothing less than both of those at the same time can change your heart in a lasting way. And I know you've heard me say this all the time, but this is another example of why the gospel doesn't fit into any of the man-made categories or belief systems or philosophies of this world. I know you've heard me say this. The gospel and Christianity itself, it's not religion. It certainly didn't fit in with the religious people in Jesus' day, but it's definitely not irreligion. It's not morality, it's not immorality, and what this story is showing us is that the gospel, Christianity, it's not relativism, but it's definitely not moralism, and, and, and let me walk through that for just a moment. You, you, you take a relativistic worldview, you know, there's no absolutes, just you know, try to do the best you can to be a good person, and you know, it'll work out in the end. Take a relativistic worldview, a, a relativistic worldview looks at Jacob and says, you poor thing, you had a terrible childhood, it's not your fault which is a nice thing to tell anybody, but that doesn't hold weight. Jacob did a lot of bad things in response to, admittedly, his tough childhood. Jacob wounded a lot of people. He needed to take responsibility for that. But relativism looks at Jacob and says, no, 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 you just need healing. You just need healing. Moralism, on the other side, looks at Jacob and says, I don't care how hard your childhood was. Nobody has a perfect childhood. Get over it. You got daddy issues? Great. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Stop being defined by what's happened to you. Try harder. Do better. Which, hey, that's great advice, but that doesn't help anybody. That's just heaping shame on somebody who's already carrying a great deal of shame. And if there's one thing my Bible makes really clear to me is shame isn't powerful enough to change the human heart. Shame can, can convince the human heart to hide itself, and shame might be able to get you to temporarily alter your surface-level behavior, but shame can't change the heart. So relativism looks at somebody like this and says, you just need healing. Moralism says, no, no, you need more wounding. The gospel says, actually, if you're going to change, you need both. You need a wound that heals you. And the only place you're going to find that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I could stop here and just say, hey, we need these two things to change. Let's, you know, close it. But I think there's one final thing um, there's, there's one final question that comes to the fore, especially when you look at Jacob's life start to finish, uh, that this question begs that I want to answer before we're done here. The question is, how could God bless somebody like Jacob? The reason I think that's not as simple as it sounds is because look at Jacob's life, even compared to his father and grandfather, Isaac and Abraham, and you'll find Jacob is a, the Bible does not come at this sideways, he is a scoundrel. Abraham had a lot of moral failings, but there's a lot of times when he is shown to be a good example. And same thing with Isaac. Obviously, Isaac was not the ideal father, but there's a lot of passages in Scripture that show Isaac as this great guy. You, you hold up Jacob's life to his father Isaac, his grandfather Abraham, and there's, there, there's really nothing to admire about him. And so the question is, well, how could God instead of annihilating somebody like this, how could God actually, how could, this, how could a being as holy as we know God is bless Jacob? And the answer, it, it, the way that he does it in this story is he's able to bless Jacob because of the way that he voluntarily limits himself. 
See, if God didn't hold back who he was, then Jacob would have been absolutely undone in his presence, and so that's exactly what God does. And you, you see it in this story. It's a pretty amazing thing to read, but on the one hand, we're told that God could not prevail against Jacob. Now, you read that verse out of context, you're going to arrive at a lot of weird conclusions about God, but right after that, it says that God blew Jacob's leg out of its hip socket simply by touching him, which shows, obviously, God could have turned him to dust and would have been justified in doing so given the life that he lived at any moment, but he didn't, very simply because God chose to hold himself back. And this is a perfect picture. Here's where I'm going with this. This is a perfect picture of what God would one day do for all of us through Jesus. Because centuries after this, in Jesus Christ, God literally would become weak so that he could bring healing and blessing and salvation into the world and freely offer it to a bunch of sinners like you and I who deserve it no more than Jacob did. And on the cross at Calvary, what happened to Jesus was the full weight of omnipotence the weight that should have crushed Jacob came down squarely on Jesus. And the prophet Isaiah actually tells us exactly what was happening to Jesus in that moment. As he hung on the cross, what we're seeing is that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace fell upon him, and it is only by his wounds that we're healed. You compare Jacob to Jesus here, and you see one stunning, but I think potentially life-changing difference, that Jacob held on in the midst of his wrestling match, despite the unbearable agony he was in to secure a blessing for himself. Jesus Christ held on in the midst of his wrestling match, despite the unbearable agony that he was in to secure the blessing for you and for me. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to, we're going to close with this. Uh, you, you really can't miss. This is a, it's such a poetic end to Jacob's journey here, if you want to refer to it that way, because what we're told in this wrestling match is that Jacob did get the blessing he was after, that God did bless him. And what that means, blessings were always verbal. They were always spoken in that day. Uh, and we're not told what Jacob what God said exactly to Jacob. But whatever it is, it must have been what Jacob longed to hear his whole life. You know, what he wished his earthly father would have told him, but even then wouldn't have changed him that way. And I don't, I don't know if your mind goes here, but every once in a while when I read stories in the Old Testament, I find myself wishing that God would just do at least some of the things now like he did in the Old Testament. Certainly not everything. But when I was putting this teaching together and zooming out from Jacob's life, I just found myself wishing that God would just show up in my life. He would just appear like he did with Jacob, uh, and he'd drag me to the ground, and he'd knock some sense into me, and he'd tell me what my heart most needs to hear so that the trajectory of my life could change that instantly and that dramatically. I don't know if you've ever read a story in the Old Testament and thought, man, I just wish God would do it like that. And I want to tell you, if that's where your mind goes then you're not seeing this story for what it is. And you're not seeing how amazing it is that we live on the other side of Calvary. Because I, I, I know this, even though we'll never know exactly what God said to Jacob that day, what we do know is that it cannot be greater than what God the Father says to you and I when we come to him through Jesus. In his baptism, scripture says that when Jesus was baptized, the voice of the Father audibly could be heard speaking over Jesus saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the promise of the gospel 
is that when we come to God the Father with a, with a posture of heart that says, Father, accept me, bless me, love me, not on the merit of what I've done, but on the merit of what Jesus Christ has done for me, that you and I have those same words by our Heavenly Father pronounced over our lives, that when God looks at you in Jesus, he says, you are my beloved child, and in you, I'm well pleased. So as we close today, I'll just leave you with this. I don't know how you read the story of Jacob without realizing that it's the story of your life and it's the story of my life because we all have a whole lot more Jacob in us than either we realize or want to admit. We carry the pain of our past experiences around with us and it causes us and the people around us a lot of harm. We live these winding, careening, meandering lives looking for something outside of God that can only be found in him. But the promise of the gospel, the promise of the gospel is that you and I, we don't have to fight for it. We don't have to wrestle for it. We don't have to strive for it. You and I can hear the blessing that no earthly father could give to us. You and I can hear the blessing that, that no relationship, that no amount of earthly possessions, that no status, that nothing in this world can give to us. We can hear it here and we can hear it now by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. And I hope that you do and I hope that we do because to know that your heavenly father delights in you Jacob's life is proof. It'll change your life in ways you'd never believe. That was his life story. It can be our life story as well. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father God, we've all lived like Jacob. We've all looked outside of you for what can only be found in you when it's, it's you, Father. It's your acceptance. It's your love. It's your blessing that our heart most deeply needs. God, I'm sure that there's people listening to this that you've brought to that place that Jacob was at as he stood on the shore of the Jabbok River. God, it is an act of grace that you would allow our self-salvation schemes to blow up in our face so that we would finally come to you. God, please let it happen as many times as it need to. Please bring us to the end of ourselves so that we could come to the beginning of you. And please help us to hear in the core of our being that in Jesus, when we come before you, you love us, you, you rejoice over us, you delight in us. There's nothing greater, Father. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.